feel like I also usually don't trust people if they don't like olives. Cooking is essentially just another way for me to be submissive. I've lived in my apartment for five or six years and I've never turned the stove on. Tell me what you had for lunch and I'll tell you what it means. Welcome to Lunch Therapy. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today is Kathy Barrow, better known on the internet as Mrs. Wheelbarrow, who's the author of many cookbooks, including Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Practical Pantry, which won the prestigious IACP Award for Best Single Subject Cookbook. She's also written a book called Pie Squared, um, which was a James Beard Foundation nominee for baking and desserts. But her latest book is a subject near and dear to my heart called Bagels, Schmears, and a Nice Piece of Fish, which is all about making your own bagels and cream cheeses and and that's like basically my favorite food. So it was so fun to talk to Kathy. And if you want to hear uh, my bonus episode with her, which comes out tomorrow, be sure to subscribe to my Substack newsletter. You can subscribe at amateurgourmet.substack.com. And if you become a paid subscriber, you'll get access to tomorrow's 10 bonus questions with Kathy, where I ask her 10 questions about bagels. But for right now, tune in to uh, our lunch therapy session and enjoy. So here's my session with Kathy Barrow. All right, Kathy. Well, welcome to Lunch Therapy. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really nice to be here, Adam. Thanks. Of course. Well, you've written a book, a cookbook that is a subject near and dear to my heart, which is a book all about bagels. Is it bagels, smears, and a nice piece of fish? Is that what it's called? That's correct. It's a whole bunch of recipes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because I have my dad's father... Whenever you asked him, um, he was like, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. My whole family is Jewish. I mean, whenever you asked him, like, how his dinner was last night about, like, a restaurant, he'd be like, oh, it was a nice piece of fish. Right. And so when I when I saw your book cover, I was like, oh, I guess that's like an expression. I thought that only my grandfather said that. My grandfather would start every Friday night Sabbath dinner saying, Mary, what a nice piece of meat this is or what a nice piece of fish <laughs> this is. So I felt that it really needed a place in the book. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's like a, a an old Jewish or Jewish like maybe it. catchphrase. Yeah. So <laughs> can, can you tell us a little bit about um, your idea for the book and, and how long it took you and how you approached it? Uh, I started thinking about this book in uh, 2014. So a really long time ago. Oddly, because I was on the Martha Stewart radio show with Lucinda Scala Quinn, who just happened Mm -hmm. to mention that Martha had been to Detroit and had had the best bagel of her life. Now, I'd been trying to make bagels for years. I baked since I was a little girl, and I started trying to make a homemade bagel probably sometime around 1995. I mean, really that long Mm -hmm. ago. And I was just completely unsuccessful. Each iteration was worse than the one before. But I <laughs> I mean, I, I actually carried New York water back to my apartment in Washington mm. to see if that so would make a difference. So it's not just a myth? It, yeah, did it? No, it's, it is a myth. <laughs> um, so when oh, I heard so that there was this great bagel in Detroit, and I was seeing all these bagel bakeries opening all around the country, I started to become interested in why the bagel was hitting this stride. And Mm -hmm. in 2016, the Washington Post ran a really terrific piece about bagel making that was very well researched. And it opened this big door for me when it identified high gluten flour as the thing that makes the difference. 
And it's not the water and it's not living in Detroit and it's not living in New York. <laughs> it's just about high gluten flour. And that was at this huge bell ringing and everything changed for me. So I wanted to share. Yeah. Like, well, like in our, in our current gluten afraid times, I love that. Like you're going the other direction, like Absolutely. bring on the gluten yeah. <laughs> as much as possible. I mean, I've made bagels before um, on my blog like years ago. And I, I think I was so thrilled at the feeling of just like having done it and baked them and seeing them hot out of the oven, golden and smelling delicious that I don't think I was scrutinizing them as much as maybe you did when you were making bagels. Like, I think I, I would have been happy probably with anything just because I'd never made a bagel before. But what, what were the qualities you were looking for as you progressed through the various different versions of the bagel? My, my brother tells a story about his uh, uh, taught... Um computer skills to all around the country. And he tells this story about being in Memphis for a, a meeting and teaching for several weeks. And his students came and said, we're going to bring you bagels tomorrow for your last day. And they arrived and he said, Kathy, these were rolls with holes. They were not bagels. <laughs> so Rolls with holes. That's know, really funny. <laughs> I really, I wanted that crackly, crispy exterior, that really chew some mm -hmm. air holes in the center. I mean, those things and the smell, that malty, yes. yeasty, wonderful smell. Well, one of the most embarrassing things about me is that I grew up um, in a Jewish family in New York and then Florida, where we had excellent bagels like yeah. growing up. I mean, I love like tons of cream cheese, like smelly onion, garlic. Uh, and then I went to college at Emory in Atlanta and I, I know there's good bagels there, but for some reason I couldn't find them. And the only thing near the campus that I could find was a Dunkin' Donuts that had their Dunkin' Donuts bagel and cream cheese. And somehow I got bewitched into actually enjoying them. And now, oddly, like if I smell a Dunkin' Donuts bagel and cream cheese, like I actually like the smell. But I don't think that's good. This sounds really like your therapy session. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe so. Well, I told you this is an important subject to me. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, have you heard of Courage Bagels in LA? And have you been there yet? I have, and I have not been there yet. But I, I think um, they were, yes, that they're a very important bagel baker. <laughs> I mean, what's happened in the last few years that I think is really fascinating, there was a real um, boom in bagel bakeries all around the country. And it sort of came at the same time as the maker generation, you know, people making mm -hmm. beer and they're making mead and they're making wine and they're making booze. But bagels are really easy entry. And unlike being a paste, you know, a bakery where you have to have a combi oven and all these sort of different things and lots of mixers, to make bagels, you just need a big Hobart and a deck oven. And that, that's pretty mm. much it. And so it's easier entry than many other kinds of food businesses. So Wait, what's a Hobart? Is that the same thing as a KitchenAid mixer? Yeah, the giant one. If you were going to do this on a commercial basis, oh, yeah. you know, the ones that yeah. look like you could put your little brother in the that kind. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's scary. <laughs> well, the, uh, the thing about courage bagels. So I had Ed Levine on this podcast a couple of, like maybe a couple of months ago or a year ago. I don't, time is irrelevant yes. these days, but, uh, uh, he said, you know, as somebody who wrote New York eats years ago, he said the best bagel of his life was at courage bagels here in LA. So after hearing that I went there and got in this huge line, you know, you have to line up to get it. And it's truly like, unlike any bagel I've ever had, it's like charred 
on the outside. It's almost like a pizza, like very crisp. And then, it, but it's so light and fluffy in the middle. So maybe if I go next time, I'll buy some and ship them to you <laughs> so you can experience them. So are they wood fired? I don't know. I don't know anything about their process because you actually, it was all outside and I never actually got to go in and see it. I have to look. Um, but I just know they're really, really good. Well, um, Kathy, well, we have a lot to cover here because we know we just talked about your book, but we have a whole therapy session in store for you. I know. Um, <laughs> I hope you're ready. I, I know that. So I, I was putting together like my, my first awareness of you. And I think it was as Mrs. Wheelbarrow on Food 52. And was that because I know that you have another book with Mrs. Wheelbarrow in the title. So was that your handle on Food 52 or is that something that you were before that? It was my handle everywhere on social media when social media sort of got going in the early 2000s. And that's because I had um, left my job as a marketing consultant to go to graduate school as a landscape designer in the year 2000. And and I was uh, over 40 and I was newly married. And my husband said, you seem miserable. And I said, I am. And he said, what would you do? And I said, I'd go to graduate school. So I went and it was a great career and I was really having fun. And then we had that 2008 little recession that kind of killed mm-hmm. my entire business. So I started writing oh. my blog and it it was very organic and just something I did because I was like, otherwise I was going to curl up and cry. So yeah. I was writing about gardening and eating and what I was cooking. And it was, I really didn't anticipate any of what's come since then. I love that. That's not where I expected you to go with that answer. So, um, <laughs> well, before we get too deep into your story, let's get, let's get to your lunch. So what did you eat today? Um, well, over the weekend, I had a little bake sale for my neighborhood to raise money for Ukraine. And I, um, I made a lot of things. I was very ambitious when I put the um, list together and I baked for two solid days. But one of the gorgeous things that I had were leftover pierogies from the baking at the 20th Century Cafe cookbook. Mm. And they were really good. And so I had four left. I made two for my husband and two for me. And then I had some steamed asparagus. And then I had okay. two Samoas. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is going to be a very complex, uh, very. Uh, tricky diagnosis. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I want to hear more about the pierogies. So how did you make them? It's a lovely dough in this book. It's very elastic. It rolls out really nicely. The... Um, filling mashed Yukon gold potatoes and caramelized onions and sauerkraut and a little bit of farmer's cheese and a lot of salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of perfect. And I pinched them together and then I fried them today in butter and oil. Wow. That sounds delicious. They were great. What was I going to ask you? Oh, so does the dough itself have sour cream in it? I've seen it recipes where you... Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. The best pierogi I've ever had was at Michael Simon's restaurant in Cleveland. In Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had like braised beef cheeks in it. And it was like enormous. It was almost like a calzone. It was huge, but it was fantastic. Well, that's a really interesting lunch. So let me just get this straight. So you got the pierogies from the bake sale. You've got the steamed asparagus and you've got the two Samoas. So the thing that comes to mind immediately in, in this context is a sense of community mindedness because you have the bake sale, you have the, um, 
you have the Samoas from the Girl Scouts, presumably. That's right. <laughs> you have feeding feeding your husband. So I guess my first question would be like, are you somebody who's community minded in general? And are you do you take that seriously? I I do. I'm hoping to build more of a community. We moved to a small town outside of DC in uh, at the end of 2019. So we've been sort of locked inside and I haven't mm. had the chance to build the kind of community I hope to here. But I have to say that if you open up on Facebook, you know, neighborhood Facebook page and say, I will bake and bring you warm baked goods on Sunday morning if you give me some money, you meet a lot of people. <laughs> yes. I don't think anyone who can cook is ever lonely. I mean, I've learned that moving to LA. It's like, and especially here because it's such a phenomenon for like anyone to actually eat food. It's like, whoa, this guy <laughs> cooks. Uh, but I think it's like, yeah, you just like you're like a magnet for people eventually because they realize, oh, I can get some good food there. I know. I'm really hopeful about my neighborhood connections now. Well, it's interesting because also like with community mindedness, it makes me think of you being uh, or going to school for gardening. And there's something about the idea of a garden that feels community oriented, although gardens can also be private. They can be your own personal garden. But uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the connection between your interest in cooking and your interest in gardening. Yeah, I think that there are um, two parallel lines in my life. I mean, they, they really intersect the way that I look at uh, the design of my garden and the way that I think about the design of my, you know, food on my plate or making pies, which, you know, I had two pie books and a lot of that was about design mm-hmm. and making beautiful things. Um, I, I love to grow my own food when I can. And that sense of being able to grow it, put it in a jar and then open a jar mm-hmm. six months later and have the whole experience returned to me. I think they're very intersected and it, when I initially started my blog in 2008, it was called Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Kitchen and Garden because I didn't mm-hmm. know how to separate them. Um, so mm-hmm. I think uh, I think if you have a piece of land and you can grow something, it it can change your relationship to food. And so you just you just moved into this new house a couple of years ago. So did you start a garden there immediately? Um, it was. The house had been a little neglected. It was built in the late 30s, and then the same family lived in it until we bought it in 2019. So, and nothing had been done to it, which was pretty interesting. So, um, and so, and what did you plant? Uh, I planted 11 trees, 45 hmm. shrubs. I have three huge raised beds where I grow vegetables. And um, a very decorated front yard. It's nice. It's not. I was out there today. So that landscape design element is is because I, I, when I said what did you plant, I was immediately thinking food. But there's also the, the just the beauty of planting trees. Well, and I have sour cherry and... trees, two of them, two crab yeah. apples, um, an apple, elderberry, a lot of raspberry vines, some blueberry bushes, currants, um, fig trees. So things are coming along. So as somebody who ha- does not have a green thumb, I famously, in fact, like you can look over my shoulder. I know people are listening to this, but you'll see in my kitchen, I have a bookshelf and you'll see plants on the bookshelf and they're, one of them is very dead already. And I only got it a couple of weeks ago. So um, what's the secret to maintaining and keeping plants and trees and bushes and vegetables going? I mean, is it just like reading a lot about how they're, they how to tend them or just an instinct? How do you know all this? Um, well, 
I, I did study it. So I, and I was also, I took master gardening, uh, master gardening class for one winter. And so I do have that knowledge, but part of it is just being aware, like spending a lot of time looking at the leaves. Are there little bugs on them? Are they getting, you know, mildewed? Is the dirt um, moist or overly watered or dry? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have good soil or bad soil? There's so many elements to it. But Mm -hmm. for me, I mean, I've had a lot of failures. There are plenty of plants that end up in the front yard on Monday mornings when the trash guy is coming. <laughs> okay. That makes me feel better. Okay. Yeah. You just pull them out fast. That's yeah. The, nobody that's knows that better. Well, it seems like to me that there's a real connection between cooking and gardening also in the sense, I mean, the way you were just talking about it, making me think about just being very present. Um, like when you're cooking, if you're, you know, making a sauce or you're making a soup or something, you know, that's what I love about it is just that feeling of not looking at my phone, not looking at email. And I'm just here with this thing in front of me tasting and smelling. So it sounds like you and get the that out of the sounds of it. I love the sound mm-hmm. of cooking. Like when you're if you're back to the stove, but you can hear things bubbling away, it's just very mm-hmm. satisfying. Well, I'm very curious. So as someone who has such a rich food and gardening life, I mean, did you grow up in a family where there was lots of gardening and, and vegetable growing and um, Sort and of. My great-grandmother was very influential. I talk about her in the book um, as the balabusta uh, mm-hmm. because that I really felt that all my life I needed to uh, become my great grandmother Agatha and be a true balabusta. She had a great little garden in the back, and she taught me all about gardening from the time I was about four years old, and also preserving. Her, she had two sons, my grandfather and my uncle Arthur. And my uncle Arthur had a an acre uh, right in the middle of Toledo, where I grew up. Um, oh, so you're from Ohio? I, I am. <laughs> and um, that acre, he planted very thickly with all kinds of foods and then just brought bushels of beans and strawberries and whatever to my great grandmother to put up in. That was my work. That was her little kitchen. What help. kind of Jews do I come from? I come from like the wrong kind of Jewish people. I mean, <laughs> my, 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 my whole family is restaurant oriented. They love food, but they just love restaurants going out for Chinese food, going out for the, you know, it's like just, we were always out and you come from these people that were like <laughs> growing things. things and yeah, Listen, that's incredible. The, the other half of my family um, the Kadetskis in Boston were the ones who were at the nightclubs in the fancy evening <laughs> gowns with the long yeah, cigarette that's holders. My mom. Yeah, that's that's definitely <laughs> my mom. So is your family, um, I mean, it feels relevant now because of what's going on in the world, but are, are, are they from, you know, Eastern Europe? Or are they from Primarily uh, Lithuania Europe? and some from Russia, um, some from Poland, Germany. So it depends what, what year you're asking. So mm-hmm. more Northern European. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your cuisine, because I mean, the way you're describing uh, how you cook and how you approach food, I mean, there's the bagels of it all. And then there's, you know, even the pierogies you talked about today. Uh, but then there's, but some of it does, does almost feel like California cuisine or just like the pickling <laughs> and then, you know, but then the preserving, which I guess is also European. I mean, it's all, it's all mixing together in my mind. But when you think about your own food, do you think of it having a cultural identity or is it more just general cooking? And I don't think I, I um, touched on that cultural identity specifically until this book. I mean, I've always mm-hmm. felt that I could cook terrific Jewish food. People want me at their house on Hanukkah because my latkes are really fantastic. You know, that. Oh, yeah. and, um, but I never thought, until this book, I never really anticipated writing a whole book about Jewish food. 
That's funny. So my latkes, I got to say, I used to throw, before COVID, I used to throw a latka party here where I'd make 400 latkes <laughs> in advance. So I'd make them all in advance. And it was, it was truly like a labor of love because I would grate those onions and grate those potatoes and like <laughs> squeeze them out. And I'd be like, Falling, right? And, uh, <laughs> frying and freezing, and then defrost. But wait, I want to know. I mean, this is a sidebar, but people will want to know. How do you make your latkes that make them so good? Well, I I use the potato starch to bind them, really, and mm-hmm. um, a little an egg, but no matzo meal, no flour, nothing like that. Just the starch that comes mm-hmm. off the potatoes in the bottom of the bowl when you soak them for a while. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then it's just the shredded potatoes and onions too? That's correct. And lots of salt and pepper and um, that potato starch and maybe an egg to hold it all together. So they're very lacy. There's not, mm. They're not meaty in the middle. They're just lacy and thin. Mine definitely had matzo meal, but I felt like I needed that to hold them together. But yours stay together. So when you say the starch, you mean like the white stuff that floats the to the white bottom stuff. of the bowl? But mm-hmm. if you is pour, it wet when you put it in? I pour off as much of the liquid as possible. So I pull the potatoes out put them in my kitchen towel for um, squeezing. And mm-hmm. the onions I usually do in the food processor with the blade. So they're mm-hmm. very finely minced because I don't like strings. Mm-hmm. And then, so I soak the potatoes, take them out and pour off all the liquid until you get to the white at the bottom. And it'll really be starchy. It'll be, mm. you know, um, feel like a cornstarch slurry or something like that. And I scrape it out and put it in with the potatoes. That's a great trick. Mm-hmm. So who taught you all this? How did you learn to cook? My grandma Mary taught me most of it and my great-grandmother. I, I cooked most Friday um, evenings with my grandmother Mary for Sabbath dinner. Wait, is Mary a Jewish name? I think her name was Ruth Mary, but she always went by Mary. That's so funny because um, we were, I was just with someone named Chris who was Jewish. And then I was thinking about it after the fact. I was like, is that a Jewish name? But yeah. maybe not. <laughs> my, great, my grandmother um, emigrated at the age of 11, 9 or 11. Mm-hmm. She lied about her age, so we're never really quite sure. But she emigrated from Lithuania with just her brothers and sisters and her grandmother because her father, her grandfather, her uncles were all rabbis and sort of leaders in this town in Vilna. And uh, they, I think they were killed. She never talked about it. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. This is your grandma, Mary. Mary. Yeah. So she came and I think she just stopped wanting to be Ruth Mary and became Mary. Oh, that's really interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, my family's last name was Rothenberg and it was changed to Roberts around that same time. And she became Block. Block. Wow. Can you talk talk to us a little bit about... um, like your specific memories of cooking with her? Like, you know, were yeah. you standing on a little step stool? Were you peeling <laughs> you know, I was potatoes? always tall, so that wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. She was short. Um, okay. I, I started, when I started writing this book, I had these incredibly uh, vivid dreams of her kitchen and remembering all mm-hmm. sorts of little things. She had, she would never use a big knife. She cut everything with the tiniest paring knife you've ever seen. And she would sharpen mm-hmm. them until the blade was like an inch and a half long, but she could cut anything with that thing. She was great. And <laughs> That's I, so funny. I remember her sunbeam mixer. I remember making lots of cakes with her, making chicken soup and uh, chopped liver and uh, just everything. She was a great all around cook and she loved doing it. 
And so I'm trying to remember what you said earlier about your great grandmother and Uncle Arthur. So is, was Mary from the other side of the family? Um, no, Agatha, my great grandmother, had two sons, Ben and Arthur. Mary was married to Ben, your grandfather. Yeah, so that was the Solomon side, my father's side. My mother so came from your, Boston. Got it. But did your great grandmother ever cook with or eat the food of Mary? No. <laughs> They were, they were really funny rivals. My grandmother. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Every okay, I year, every year at Passover, my grandmother would say, she calls, she says, what can I bring? And I say, well, <laughs> you could make the cake. She says, I'll bring the hard boiled eggs. And then my grandmother <laughs> would say, I can make my own hard boiled eggs. It was the funniest conversation. <laughs> I remember it for I years and years. <laughs> so there was a little competition between them. Absolutely. My great-grandmother Agatha was the head of Hadassah and she would run these bake sales. And I would be at her house making hamantash and arugula for like days, thousands Mm -hmm. of them. And so she was very proud of her ability, but she would never help out. (laughs) So what are the, what are the recipes you make today that are the ones that most remind you of your, your grandmother and great-grandmother? Definitely the arugula. Um, an angel food mm-hmm. cake with my grandmother Mary's and also her, she made a cinnamon swirl coffee cake with the, mm, you know, that, that wonderful, so with that nutting, nutty cinnamon top. And I thought it was her recipe. And I swear when I first saw it in a deli, I wondered how they got her recipe. I didn't know anybody else could make it. I thought it was just her. <laughs> See, my reference point is Entenmann's because that's what my dad would eat when I was growing up, Entenmann's coffee cake, which was still pretty good. But really now good. I make my own with sour cream. <laughs> right, really good. exactly. Okay, so anyway, that, those were the ones. Yeah. yeah, she taught me to roast a chicken. I mean, there's nothing like a good roast chicken and hers was great. So, What's the secret? How do you do it? Um, she always dried it for a long time in the, in the refrigerator before she roasted it. Just like we now know, you know, rub salt all over it, put it naked in the mm-hmm. refrigerator and she did that even back in the 60s. Wow. I do a very non-Jewish thing, which is I, I, sh- I smear butter all over it, which I guess is like meat and dairy, but it, it makes it very golden brown. Well, and that's delicious. the Kadetsky side. My grandmother Kadetsky put bacon fat in her matzo balls. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Go, go Grandma Kadetsky. Exactly. Uh, well, I, well I, we kind of skipped over this other part that you talked about, you alluded to, and I mean, and it feels like it's an important part of your psychology and especially your relationship to food now and your career, which was the whole chapter of your life where you worked in marketing. So can you walk us through, you know, growing up in this family with all this food and then how you got into marketing and like what that path was like? Yeah. I mean, there's so many crazy things. Um, I graduated from college during the the gas crisis. Remember, the gas crisis was really a big deal. And in fact, I had job offers in California and my family was like, oh, you can't go there. You'll be in line for gas all the time. Mm. So I ended up working at a a department store. And that's my first job was as a buyer at a department store. And two years later, because I have an entrepreneurial spirit, I opened my own fish market. What? <laughs> I can't. You um, opened your own fish market. I mean, that's not market. what I expected you to say. I yeah, thought you were going to say bakery or coffee <laughs> shop. Or wait, so where where was this? It was in Pittsburgh, and it just happened that it was a series of shops that a real estate developer was putting together that would emulate one store, like Dean and Deluca, broken up into different shops. And he offered me the fish market. I said sure. I was 
sort of vaguely known around town for my cooking abilities from parties that I had and so on. And I was working at this department store. So he thought I could do this. So I opened a fish market. It was called Porgy and Bass. You can steal it. Porgy and Bass. I love that. That's so funny. You know, I'm working on a Broadway cookbook. And we, have, uh, we have Porgy and Watercress is the name of our recipe. But that's still, funny. That's really fun. Yeah, I love it. So, um, so I, I guess I was like aiming toward food from the very beginning. I, even as a buyer in a department store, I was in the housewares department. I was always more mm-hmm. interested in housewares than I was in clothing. So mm-hmm. I went from housewares to the fish market, which, you know, flamed out in about a year and a half because that's what happens. And, um, but wait, when you, when you start a, wait, I just, I want to go into this a little bit because sure. it's like, if you're like, Adam, go run a fish market, I, like, <laughs> I would have, not have the first idea what to do. I mean, so did you have to develop relationships with fishermen? I spent people? six months traveling around the U.S. I worked at the Fulton Fish Market for three weeks as an intern. Wow. Um, they called me princess. Did you smell like fish? They called me princess. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I okay. traveled to the West Coast. I learned about crab. I went to the Gulf and learned about oyster. I was just on a big education trip for about six months and it was great. And the idea was that you were learning where to import like the different things from and, yes. and to build those relationships. That's okay. That's And cool. so when I opened the store, I would start every day by driving to the airport and in my little <laughs> Volkswagen and I'd put like 50 pounds of fresh fish and a bunch of oysters and things and then drive it to the store and cut fish all day. It was pretty crazy. Now selling fish sounds really hard because unlike other things that you could sell, I mean, they can go, it goes bad pretty quickly, right? So right. how do you move, what do you do with the fish? I mean, do you just throw out a ton of fish? when This they don't was sell? very early on in the prepared food world. It was 1983. So people were just getting used to the idea that they could go to a store and buy something that was already ready-made, take it home and warm it up. And so that's what I was doing with most of it. I was converting it to meals that then people would come and take. Wow. That's a great idea. So what, what were some of those meals that you remember making? Oh, I used to do stuffed snapper that you could put on the grill. Um, I, uh, I had a lot of salmon dishes, you know, with um, pestos and persalades and all sorts of things like that. So there were still raw pieces of fish, but you were mm-hmm. dr- dressing them up. But like, were you also preserving? And like, I if did. Like if it was like a, cu- a couple of days went by. Like, were you like, I better turn this into smoked salmon? I made a lot of soup. <laughs> okay, a lot, a of, lot fish of soup. soup. <laughs> yes, and I smoked uh, salmon and also mussels and oysters and mm. a lot of shellfish. I feel like if you did this now, it would be all right. the rage. It was like way be... too early. All the reviewers were like, you can go to these stores and it's great, but you better like forget your mortgage or something like that. You know, it's uh, all about how right. expensive it was. But, you know, people just weren't used to the idea. In Pittsburgh at the time, there was a, a fish market downtown in an area that was very industrial. And so people mm-hmm. were used to walking on sawdust and seeing a guy with eight fingers who offered you, you know, whatever you wanted. So, Well, it's also interesting because, I mean, it feels like there's two skill sets that we're talking about. One is being a food-minded person who knows how to deal with food. But then there's also what we're going to get to, which is like the business part of it, which I don't have a mind for at all. I mean, I don't know how I'm still like have, you know, an apartment and it's like I'm terrible with money. Um, But we're 
but going into marketing, I mean, was that something you were good at? Was the business side of it too? Yeah, I, I figured that out, um, you know, working in the department store and then market. I really do sound so old, uh, but marketing at the time in the mid eighties was a word that was a new word. Mm-hmm. Literally people, people would say you're in marketing. What does that even mean? Sometimes it <laughs> meant sales. Sometimes it meant communications. Sometimes it meant PR. Uh, so it was a lot of different things at the time. I had um, a communication skill. And so I was usually the one developing ads or uh, developing videos or putting together annual reports, um, writing letters for chairmen, things like that. And where, where was this? Where did, where where did this I work? Well, I worked through those years. I worked at the National Association of Realtors. Um, at the American Trial Lawyers Association. I really oh worked God. with some great people. Um, the <laughs> the uh, Corporate Council Association. And then I became a consultant and I had about 50 different associations that I worked with. It's so funny because I went to law school and I've never used my law degree. And it's such a similar story in the sense that like, yeah. it feels like you were working in a very dry, like not, I mean, for lack of a better word, like non-sensual. Like, I mean, I just think of like, like fluorescent lights and like piles of paper and, you know, yes. the smell of copy machines. And like, and that's how I felt in law school and like dusty libraries with huge textbooks and, you know, and just like wanting to go into and just discovering the kitchen and, and, and realizing, yeah. oh, you can and make things smell good and taste good. And, and yeah, so you were. And I ready. would know that there'd be like collating to do for some conference where I had to get all the administrative people to come and help me put together, you know, 5,000 packets. And so I would bake. That's what I would do. Yeah. I'd be like, here are the brownies. Everybody come yes. out. <laughs> That's smart. So uh, throughout this whole period where you worked in marketing, were you going home every day and and cooking? I mean, was it still a a joy for you and a pleasure? Absolutely. And then later in my marketing career, I started doing event planning and I really had fun because I got to go to all kinds of restaurants, you know, on somebody else's dime. It was great. And plan big meals and So, and throughout all of this, I mean, you know, obviously we're building to this place where you've written cookbooks and you have this, you know, illustrious food career, but were you also like a fan of, of, of food literature, I guess, and like other people's cookbooks? I mean, were you, were you following all of that the whole time? And I guess my question is like, who are your big influences throughout all of this? Well, I mean, I, I definitely cooked my way through all of made a heater early on, Mm. like all of it. Um, I took a class with Marcella Hassan. Amazing. And then I cooked my way through all of her books. I read. Was she smoking when she taught taught you? Uh (laughs) Yeah, she was. (laughs) That's what I remember from, I think it was Kim Severson's memoir where she went to go visit Marcella and she cooked with her and she was like smoking over like the. Right over the food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, So I would do these deep dives. It's just sort of the way my brain works where I would take a book and I would just cook my way from the front to the back and, and learn something. And then I would have parties and invite people and, mm. you know, have a big party. So that was me for years and years and years. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and were you more of a baker or more of a savory cook or a mixture of the two? I really could comfortably cook the whole way around, but I love baking more than anything. Mm-hmm. And what about writing? Cause I mean, obviously we're doing these cookbooks, writing and doing a blog and everything is such a big part of it. Were you somebody <laughs> who loves to write? I never wrote 
anything but annual reports before uh-huh. I wrote my blog. I, I, my mother was an English teacher, so she was a little daunting and she wrote books. And I, I think I was always afraid to do it. Then she mm-hmm. passed away and then I started writing. So who knows? I mean, I think we could talk oh. about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that is very interesting. It's like it's to be intimidated in that way and, and yeah. to free yourself up. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say it. You know, I wish I really do wish that she had had a chance to see this. Um, but I, I find writing is really comforting. I, I love to write and I had no idea that it would make me as happy as it does. So it's been a great, you know, 15 years of writing. So in terms of your process, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to people on this podcast who, I mean, it's a wide variety of processes, if that's the right way to say that word, um, from like, you know, charts and tables to like people who just go by instinct. I mean, some people are in the kitchen um, taking notes as they cook. I just had Andy Baragani on. He, he outlines that. the whole, yeah, he, he outlines his whole recipe before he goes to the kitchen. So what do you do? Um, first I work in Scrivener. Do you know that program? It's like, I just tried it. I don't think it was for me, but I, I I know some people really like it. I had to have somebody show me like screenshots to understand it, honestly, because I'm not very technical. It's possible that I just didn't understand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I understood what I was supposed to be doing, but I've used it for all four books and I find it really, um, essential. It's a very good organizing tool because, um, sometimes I get too, deeply involved to be able to really understand a good organization. With my first book, The Preserving Book, my husband used to say, get out of the jar. You're inside the jar. You need to be outside the jar. And it was really Uh. true. Like I was just going way (laughs) too deep. Um, I do write my recipes ahead of time and then take them into the kitchen and see how they work out. And I realized during that process that I, I often forget a lot of things that I just do without thinking. So it's a mm-hmm. good way for me to work. Same way. I, I think that's what I did with the Broadway cookbook was like, I, you know, I would have an idea for something and then I would just sort of try it. I mean, it's also like there is a certain arbitrariness, it seems ultimately to like one tablespoon of this or one teaspoon of this. It's because it's it, to me, it's all about tasting it and adjusting based on your own personal taste. But on the flip side, when you're doing a recipe, this comes up a lot too in these podcasts, which is that, you know, you want to enable people, you want people to to get the same results that you got, but at the same time, you want to empower them to adjust their liking. So it, it always seems very tricky to me. I think one of the hardest things for me with this book was that I was determined to get the yield on the bagels to six. I just felt that making more than half a dozen bagels at a time, if you were going to do it regularly, was too mm-hmm. many. I, I'm in a family, you know, a household of two, six bagels yes. is great. And uh, you don't have to find a place for a whole baking sheet in your refrigerator, mm-hmm. all, all the reasons. But then I had to find a perfect balance between the amount of flour and the amount of water and the yeast, wanting the yeast to be an even measurement. You don't want it mm-hmm. to be seven eighths of a teaspoon or right. I, I, I mean, a teaspoon and a third. You want it to be a teaspoon. And then you know, does it then overproof? Do you need to reduce? So that was, that was one of the more interesting negotiations I had in the kitchen for this book. Well, even the tea, even the teaspoon versus weight is its own thing too. Cause it's like a lot of people don't have scales in the kitchen. So then it's like, do you put it in, in, in grams or do you just do it in teaspoons? Right. I don't, I don't use grams for anything, one tablespoon or less, unless 
there's a good reason for it. I, I just oh, think okay. that most scales aren't that precise mm-hmm. for seven grams. Like it's very hard. You're you're dropping one little tiny nugget of yeast at a time to get to seven grams. It's easier to use a teaspoon. So but everything else I weigh. So in terms of like being inside the jar versus outside the jar, <laughs> when, when you're doing something like, well, I, I love that. And it, it makes me think of like, you know, the micro versus the macro and, and just being very singularly focused. I mean, that's a huge difference between me and my husband is that he can be so singularly focused. It's like if he's looking at something and I'm trying to talk to him, forget about it. Whereas my brain is like, like I can just like have 30 things going on at once. But so when you go down these rabbit holes or when you're like in the jar, yeah. Yes. Like with the with I mean I imagine with bagels like it would be very easy to be in the jar because there's so many different approaches, so many different philosophies. So how deep did you go until you had to pull yourself out? Um, well, there's a section in the bagel chapter called "Bagels My Grandmother Wouldn't Recognize." Like the first mm-hmm. half of that chapter was very straightforward. There are only a few bagels that, as Jews, we can feel proud to put on a platter. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I had a review from the forward where they said it was a little mishuga for me to put Asiago cheese and pepperoni in a bagel, for instance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> got it, got it. Okay, and, well, I mean, your, your grandmother put bacon fat in her matzo balls, so, right. so there you go. <laughs> clearly, I, I'm just one big Shonda. But um, <laughs> I, so there were a lot of combinations that I considered. I um I was playing around with some different seasonings for the toppings. I tried furakake, you know, the Japanese. Oh. It was a little too salty like the sea for me for a bagel. Like I want mm-hmm. my salt in the in the locks, not necessarily on top with the right. nori. But so I went to a lot of different rabbit holes that didn't work. <laughs> Was there one that was like a true catastrophe or, or is it all just like, this isn't to my taste? I had a brief moment where I thought I should make a rainbow bagel. I was pulled oh, yeah, back no. from the edge. Several people <laughs> told me I didn't have to do that. But there, yeah. there were some there were some moments there. Well, as a gay Jewish person, I can say I, I share your dis, distrust of or the disinterest in a rainbow bagel. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's my thing. Yeah. It, it just didn't really, you know, express me as a cook or a Jew or <laughs> anything. Right. Because <laughs> it's not about flavor. It's just about color. And that's not going to make it taste better. Um, well, I have to share with you my own personal therapy moment of bagels and Judaism and cooking and my mother, which is... <laughs> That's so a lot. One time, yeah, I'm curious what you're going to, I think it's just a funny story, but the, there was this one day that I made, um, what do they call like bagel balls or like, you know, where it's like the cream cheese is inside the, oh, yes. the bagel balls, mm-hmm. bagel bites. It was actually from Christina Tosi's milk bar cookbook. And so I was making, you know, I, and they were really cool. Like, you know, you rolled them in, in all the everything bagel seasoning. And my, and I was doing it on Instagram live. And then my mom called me. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm making bagels. She goes, do you know what today is? And I was like, what? She goes, it's Passover. <laughs> and she was so, she was so angry at me about like, cause I mean, I'm, I'm agnostic. Like I, I don't, I, I'm culturally Jewish, but I don't, you know, I don't really observe many of the holidays, but it was such like a, a, a big, 
big no-no and with my mother like she was really upset probably also because I was putting it on Instagram maybe if I just told her I was doing it she'd be like just don't tell anybody right. but hold that for a week and then put it up <laughs> but we could turn we could turn this back to you and I, I'm curious like, in terms of your own faith and the link between your faith and your cooking and the holidays and stuff how does that all work for you I was raised very culturally Jewish but not in the least religious and uh, I'm very comfortable with that position. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm yes. proud to be Jewish. I um, am delighted to celebrate Passover because I love the tradition. I like the Haggadah. Mm-hmm. I like the food. I like. I even love gefilte fish, so I must be Jewish. <laughs> but I don't belong to a temple, and I don't feel mm-hmm. any real need to. I, I don't have any children, and that may have something to do with it. I, I know a lot of my mm-hmm. Jewish friends become more involved with the temple as their kids go through bar and bat mitzvahs. But um, I never did that. It's actually funny you say that because, you know, I'm not having children either, but my husband is Christian or not, not observant, but his family's Christian and they do Christmas every year. And we've gotten to the point now where like I go to Washington state where his family is and we do the whole Christmas thing. There's stockings, there's a tree, there's gifts, there's Christmas dinner. And, you know, and I always joke, I was like, wait, I always say to Craig, I was like, what, what day is Christmas this year? What day does it fall on? And he's like, it's the same day every year. Um, but anyway, I love that tradition just because it's fun. It's like, okay, this, you know, no skin off my back, but if we had children to your point, like I do think I would want them to do Hanukkah. I would want them to do, I I think it would be very important for me to pass that on. So it is funny how, like, just for myself, I don't feel the need to observe in that way, but in terms of passing on tradition, it, it, it does kind of make sense to me that you're carrying on this story or you're carrying on these traditions for your children to, consider for themselves in a way. When I was growing up, we went to my grandmother Mary's for Sabbath dinner every Friday. And what I remember Mm -hmm. most about it was that was where I learned about my Judaism because around the table were her friends and there were Holocaust survivors there. And, you know, that I remember them and I remember talking to them about their experiences and, and to learn directly from someone about your religion in that way was very, very meaningful. And Mary, just remind me again, is your father's mother? Yes. Because I mean, I'm just curious, and this is you know, this is getting personal, so feel free to push aside. But I mean, I've read a lot of books, and I'm familiar with like children of Holocaust survivors, or can go through their own. It's like passed down trauma that happens. Yeah. And I'm curious, was did did you feel like that was that happened in your family at all, or? Um, um, no, because my family had all gotten out. They got um, out, right? Yeah. So they didn't really experience it in that way. They came in the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I read a book recently called In Miriam's Kitchen. Have you ever yes. read Yes. And it was great. And it's it, a was, it was sort of book. about all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about um, a woman whose mother-in-law is a right. Holocaust survivor and, and she learns from her. Yeah. Dr. And Mary, uh, Dr. Oscar and Mary Newfeld were the couple that came many Fridays to the Table. And they had both survived independently and then had married each other when they met in a resettlement camp after the war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what do you, what, when you witnessed them doing Friday night dinner and stuff, I mean, did those traditions take on a different meaning seeing it through their eyes? Definitely, because they talked about not being able to do it for many years and to be being in the camps and having to secretly celebrate. And so mm-hmm. it did affect me deeply. 
now I'm feeling very guilty. So you know, <laughs> this this is a very Jewish podcast. It's a very <laughs> Jewish podcast. <laughs> yeah. So you, so maybe we'll go rewind the tape a little bit. So can you talk a little bit about your other books too? So like selling. So with, with the very first book that you did, and I know it's Mrs. Wheelbarrow's Practical what, Pantry. Practical Pantry. So can you talk about? So did that come from the blog? Did that like what 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 led to the first book? Um, well, I was writing my blog and. Um, I, I had one of these moments that I like to call my um, Lana Turner moment because I was discovered at the pharmacy. I literally <laughs> got a phone call one day from Susan Edgerly, who was the editor of the food section of the New York Times. And she wow. asked me if I'd be interested in contributing a regular column about preserving. Incredible. See, the New York yeah. Times ignores all my emails. I, it, it was I can't the even imagine. craziest thing. <laughs> I, I, but was, you were doing preserving on your on your blog, so she was aware that you did this very correct. well. Correct. And, and then I don't know if you remember Charcuterie Palooza, but that mm-hmm. was um, a year long charcuterie project that I led with Kim Foster, and we encouraged mm-hmm. bloggers to make their own charcuterie at home, and had a okay. monthly challenge and. An, at the end of it, there was a trip to France and a week at a charcuterie school and a party in Paris and all sorts of wow. things. Wow. Yeah. And so yeah, that was such an innocent time back then when <laughs> we could all meet people from the internet without being terrified. That's right. And, <laughs> and I, I mean, I used <laughs> all of my marketing skills from years uh-huh. at these firms, you know, to develop a sponsorship program and a 12 month, um, uh, contest. And so that was really how I got better known. And mm-hmm. so the times, but then the post and Bonnie Benwick was the recipe editor at the time came to me. I met Bonnie at a pie uh, contest at, that I okay. won. She was a judge and she's like, why are you writing for the New York times when you live here in Washington? And I'm like, well, I'll write for you too. So I wrote for <laughs> both of them for a while. Wow. And then eventually had a column with the post for about 10 years. That was great. It was a lot of fun. That's fantastic. So in terms of cooking, it's like, okay, you, you do everything. Is there anything that you don't do well or an area of cooking that you don't feel confident in? Um, gosh, I mean, I'm sure that there are. My husband was macrobiotic when we first met and I, I wow. said that won't happen. So no, I, <laughs> I What is macrobiotic? I don't even know what that it's means. Too much brown rice. That's what I can tell you. It's way too <laughs> right. much brown rice. Yeah. I feel pretty comfortable diving into almost any kind of cooking. I think of it as a skill and not mm-hmm. really a talent. I mean, if you read the recipe carefully, you should be able to get there. Talent mm-hmm. comes after a long time of practice. You know, you think anybody can develop that talent? Though? I, I don't do. know if I think. Oh, see, this is why you're good at marketing. This is why you sell so many cookbooks. <laughs> see, I think you have to. I Here's my take on it. I think you have to love food. I think you have to love yes, eating. That's absolutely true. Because I have friends who are like, oh, I forgot to eat all day. And I think, who are you? What do you mean? I forgot to oh work today. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, living in L.A., you'll meet a lot of those people. And I know it sounds like I'm joking, but no, there are people who like. You literally are like, oh yeah, what time is it? I, I haven't had anything. It's, who are you? Um, but yeah, I think if you don't love food, I mean, that's the thing about you know my family. As much as nobody cooked, they, they we loved meals. I mean, every 
every meal was like an event and it was exciting and it was like, where are we going to lunch? Where are we going to dinner? So yeah, I definitely took that on. Um, so do you, with the fish market to present day, do you ever have aspirations? I know you just did a bake sale, but would you ever, ever like open up another little place and sell your own stuff? No, <laughs> all the neighbors are now asking that question. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I really don't have any interest in doing that. I'm happy yeah. to bake sale. I'm happy to do all that, but I, d- I don't want that kind of daily. Crime. So what is your typical, I mean, so when you're going through a typical day, is it usually like you have a book that you're working on and you're testing recipes for that? Or are you working on just your own projects for your own self? Like how do you div- divvy it all up? Well, I have a newsletter now that I'm writing every two weeks and that occupies a certain amount of time. I'm very um, uh, disciplined. I've been working for myself since the early nineties and that's a very long time now. And so I have breakfast with my husband and then I say goodbye and I come to my office and I'm, I work in my office. If I'm any kind of writing book, whatever I write all morning until noon and then I have lunch and then I work on recipes in the afternoon. So when you say your office, is it not in your house or right here? I know. No, it's no, in my I, house. Yeah, I, okay, because you say goodbye, but like you're, no, like, I go you're still in the same. And I really, I'm, I'm like not available for a yeah. few hours. Mm-hmm. And this is where you're just you're you're writing recipes down to test later, and you're you're writing your head notes and maybe your newsletter and things like some that. of it. And and I'm working on a few projects just for my own self, some essays and things. I don't know if they'll ever see the light of day, but mm-hmm. the the hours from like eight until noon are very crisp hours for me and very good for writing. Well, in terms of marketing, I mean, your own stuff in 2022, it feels like, you know, coming through the very, you know, having written for the New York Times and the Washington Post, but all, you know, over the past 10, 15 years doing your blog, it feels now so much is on social media with Instagram and especially TikTok, which I can't get my brain yeah, around. That's uh, where, that's where the road stop for me. <laughs> yeah. But how have you adjusted to all of these new mediums? Do you enjoy them? Do you find them stressful? What's so interesting to me is that I I got on social media because I worked for myself and I was, you mm-hmm. know, lonely and it was like the water cooler. It was this great place yeah. to go. It was so light and fun in the early mm-hmm. years to be on Twitter. And um it's gotten different. It's definitely yes. different. Oh um, my gosh. And a few years ago, I I hired somebody to help me learn how to um, do better with Instagram. It was early in Instagram and I just didn't understand any of it. The first thing mm-hmm. she said to me was, oh, you're the click generation, not the swipe generation. Well, that of course just sent me over the edge. What? Well, I don't even know what that means. I think I'm a click generation too, but I don't even know what it, <laughs> it means. It was really sad. And then <laughs> she told me that I had to start every day thinking, what is my Instagram story today? And I thought if I actually had to do that, I mean, that, that's Who just not person? me. It's not me. <laughs> no. But I understand that that's the way to do it. Right. You know, like if you're really going to do it, but I still... I'm just having fun on social media. Yes. And that's what makes you so much more relatable. I mean, you see people who have these very, you know, regimented accounts or like these very, you know, not posture, but like their presentational accounts and it it doesn't feel real. And it's like, I know they have like 500,000 to a million followers, but I'd rather have my little, (laughs) you know, coterie of followers who enjoy what I do. That's how I feel. I mean, two years ago, I decided that 
everybody was bothering me to show them how I canned tomatoes. And I did the whole thing holding the phone in one hand and stirring <laughs> and peeling. And yeah, I mean, it was great. a complete mess, but it was totally me and it was fine. Excellent. <laughs> That's all it needs to be. Um, well, Kathy, I always start every podcast with what did you have for lunch, but I end it with what are you having for dinner tonight? Well, I pulled some ribolita out of the freezer last night for tonight's dinner because I knew that I'd be chatting with you and I wouldn't be in the mood to like create something big. So we're having uh, ribolita. Okay. Mm-hmm. How far ahead do you think about your meals? Like you were thinking ahead last night about tonight's dinner. So do you usually think a day ahead? I make a list at the beginning of the week of what we're going to have for dinner every night. I shop for really? it. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm very organized. That's great. What else is on the list this week? Um, I've been making this great dish from Hetty McKinnon that's in the New York mm-hmm. Times. It's She's a been sh- on my podcast. Oh, my God sheet pan ramen noodles. Like you just soak them and you put them to get crispy and you throw some mushrooms and some tofu and some bok choy yeah. on there. And holy cow, it's really good. So we're going to have that one that night. Good. I know that. Uh, mm-hmm. I have an oven again. My oven was out for the past oh, three or good. four weeks. So now I'm going to, it's like, I've been working so hard to cook without an oven. And now I have to remember what it's like to have one. <laughs> you know, I was thinking a lot about your newsletter today and that clam chowder with fried clams on it and oh, yeah. holy cow what a good idea that sounded I great know. it was heavy but it was very yeah. very good it was so funny because like i i yeah i went to boston and um I was at this place, Salty Girl, and I ordered this decadent lobster roll that which came in with potato chips. And so the waiter started walking over with this bowl of clam chowder with fried clams. I was like, that's not mine. But it ended up the guy, somebody who followed me, his mother, I guess I wrote that in my newsletter, but his mother owns the restaurant. Yeah. So he sent over this bowl. That's so funny. Um, well, uh, Kathy, you've been such a good sport, but we're not done yet. So I have... Um, 10 questions for you that we're going to do in a mm-hmm. bonus episode. But for you specifically, I came up with 10 bagel related questions. I'm very excited. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and want to hear those, uh, subscribe to my newsletter, Amateur Gourmet Newsletter. And you got to get it in your inbox tomorrow. But Kathy, for those who are listening for the free episode, thank you so much. And just stick around. Thank you. It's been really fun. So once again, if you want to get tomorrow's paid subscribers only bonus podcast with Kathy Barrow, subscribe at amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right, I'll see you back here next week.